Okay, so we, uh, we've been talking about desire theory, the desire theory of well-being. And, you know, we started off understanding it to be a very simple theory which says that satisfying your desires makes you happy. And, uh, and then we realized that we needed to... Some, some current or present desires satisfied clearly doesn't lead to a person being happy. So we realized, oh, we need to consider an adjustment to the desire theory and look at what are known as informed desires. So then the theory would be, well, satisfy your informed or rational desires, and then you'll be happy. And we looked at some problems with doing that. And some problems even with just making sense of what we mean by informed or rational desires. And then we worried about another issue with desires, which is that um, some of them seem to be defective. And I want to start by reading again this passage that we read uh, by Julia Annis in our main um, desire theory reading. And here it is on page, our main desire theory reading, if you look at page one, uh, the passage numbered 46D, here's what Julia Annis, she gives three different kinds of defective desires, which all present a problem for desire theory. And I want to talk about the third one today, but let's read the whole passage. She says, one thing the desire theory, the desire satisfaction account disables us from doing is making judgments about the happiness of people whose desires are in obvious ways defective. Notoriously, some desires are based on radically faulty information or reasoning. Some desires are unresponsive to the agent's reasoning powers because of the force of addiction or obsession. So the idea, those are the first two kinds of defective desires, addiction and obsession. And the idea is that even if the person, even if you're trying to look at rational desires or informed desires, these desires are unresponsive to an agent's reasoning powers. So the point is that someone who's addicted to alcohol, let's say, might know very well that satisfying their desires all the time to drink is not a good thing. You know, they have the rational capacity, but, but these desires are defective in a way where they're not integrated with a person's reasoning. So that presents a problem for desire theory. But then she talks about a third way in which desires are defective. And I want to spend the whole day today talking about this third way. And here's what she says. At a deeper level, some desires are themselves deformed by social pressures. Social pressures. Girls who desire less for themselves than for their brothers, poor people who desire for self, who's de, who see desire, poor people who see desire for self-betterment as unimaginable. 
She says, then, on the next page, these are just two of many kinds of desires. I guess she's referring to addiction and obsession as one, and uh, this third kind as a, as a second kind. These are just two of many kinds of desires that are open to criticism, despite being honestly expressed. Oh, no, she's, I'm sorry. She's talking about those last two, girls who desire less for themselves than their brothers, and poor people who desire for self-betterment, see desire for self-betterment as unimaginable. Those two she's referring to. These are just two of many kinds of desires that are open to criticism, despite being honestly expressed and open to modification in the light of reason and information, because they spring from the internalization of ideas that deny the agents themselves proper respect. So we're going to focus on that third class of desires that are defective because of social pressures. You can call these, you remember we're using desires and pref- the word desire and preference as synonyms. So we can call this last kind of defective desire um, adaptive preferences. That's what we're going to call it, adaptive preferences. And so this is the criticism of desire theory based on adaptive preferences. And we're going to spend the whole day talking about that. And one thing that's interesting about this is now we're going to talk about political philosophy because we see that once there's this idea that social political pressures affect a person's desires, now all of a sudden we have to kind of back up and think about the social and the political. So this criticism of desire theory typically comes from political philosophy, from feminist philosophy, for example. So that's so today we're going to be talking about political philosophy and uh, feminist philosophy. So let's focus on, I want to focus on the one example of, uh, as Julia Annis says, Girls who desire less for themselves than for their brothers. And I want to focus on that one. And maybe a general way to put this is to say that someone who internalizes a negative stereotype about their own group, in this case girls, can desire less as a result. And this is one, you know, if you want to put this in a big category, this is one of the subtle ways that oppression keeps the oppressed down. And we're, we're talking about sexism. And so the idea is that in this kind of case, a girl who grows up in a sexist community, sexist household, adapts her preferences down, desires less for herself than for her brother. But even though this adapting down of desires or preferences is happening, the girl might think that she's desiring what she wants and getting what she wants. So there's a weird kind of unconscious thing going on here that we're trying to focus on. So here, let me kind of try to spell out the puzzle for desire theory, the criticism of desire theory in a few different loose steps here to see what you think. So let's say that you're, 
your preferences, your desires are adapted down because you're in this kind of a group. And let's say you're unconscious of this. If your preferences are satisfied, then you are judged happy from the perspective of the desire theory. But how could you really be happy in that kind of a case? The preferences don't seem to be your true preferences because they're caused by external influences, even though you think they're your true preferences. So this seems to present a problem for desire theory because desire theory judges a person happy even if the preferences that are satisfied are unconsciously adapted down. Uh, let's read page four of the first desire theory handout. Um, and these are quotes from Chris Heathwood. And look at the one numbered 144. This is getting at this adaptive preferences criticism. Heathwood says, there are other objections to the desire approach worthy of our attention. When someone can't get what he really wants, now this is a little bit, a little bit different the way he describes it. When someone can't get what he really wants, he may adapt his preferences to his predicament. Now this all sounds conscious. If he succeeds in doing this, you know, adapting his preferences down, like really making the adjustment, he is now getting everything he wants. This seems like an unfortunate situation, but the desire theory may be unable to accommodate this intuition. In other words, the intuition that there's something wrong here or that there's something, uh, you know, that the person's not really, doesn't really seem happy because the desires have been adapted down. That way that Chris Heathwood describes it makes it sound like the adapting down is conscious and a conscious reaction to not being able to get what you truly want. But we want to look at this example where the adapting down happens unconsciously based on a social and political environment. So I, I should stop there and just see, like, initially where you're at, if you have any questions, if you want to ask clarification questions or anything, that's fine. We're going to keep talking about it, obviously, but maybe it's a good chance to just stop and check in and see how does all this sound so far. Okay, so far, so good. Sometimes I can't tell if I'm being clear or not, so I like to stop and check. But remember, you, if you have some kind of question that sounds kind of idiotic in your head, ask it. Because um, I, odds are other people are having the same kind of question. And I can sort of see what's going on. And then I can talk about whatever it is that is confusing. So you should feel free to ask you know, anything. OK. Sometime, well, go ahead. If you, Okay, well, the idea is, in this case, we take this case of this girl growing up in a sexist household within a sexist community, and the idea is 
that let's say she has desires to get married and to have a family. You can see this is going to get tricky. Um, now, someone who's keyed into this adaptive preference concern might say, well, wait a minute. Why does her brother have a desire to be a mathematician or you know, a philosopher or an engineer, but she only desires to get married and have children? Someone worried about sexism might say, well, is there something going on here where she doesn't feel like she deserves as much as her brother or can achieve as much as her brother because of the social pressures? And so has she unconsciously adjusted her preferences down? And if she has, imagine that she gets what she desires. She gets to have a family and to get married. There's something that feels a little bit weird about that. It feels like desire theory, because desire theory then is going to say she's happy. But there's something that feels a little bit weird, like desire theory is not quite capturing the full situation. And so political philosophers and feminist philosophers worry, is there something here that's lost when you analyze the situation through desire theory? Because desire theory is not really capturing this notion that due to social and political pressures, her desires are adapted down. She wants less for herself than she might if she weren't in a sexist environment, uh, she wants less for herself than she would if she were a boy. And you can see that maybe because she expects and wants for more for her brothers. And you can run this kind of an argument for every kind of oppressed group because it's kind of, you know, somewhat obvious that in many cases, if a group is oppressed, they might have lower expectations for themselves than they would have if they were in the dominant group. That's kind of what we're trying to look at. It's pretty complicated because it involves this idea of, I mean, it, it involves a kind of a controversial move because if someone has desires, it's weird for a philosopher to come in and say, wait a minute, those aren't really your desires. I mean, that feels weird but we're trying to sort of see if there's something to this. That's kind of the basic idea. You know, we're gonna go through it in, in detail, but that's sort of the phenomenon that we're concerned about. Yeah, wait, sit, Erica, right? Okay. It's a criticism of desire theory by looking and being concerned about social and political issues. And you know, we, we know that desire theory is a subjectivist theory, which means that what makes a person happy is a matter of their subjective preferences. But now this criticism is saying, well, wait a minute, sometimes subjective preferences are a little bit weird or affected by social political situations. And so this criticism is saying, is it 
appropriate for a theory of happiness to not take into consideration these broader social political issues? Is it appropriate and correct and acceptable and does it seem right for a theory of happiness to only be focused on subjective preferences when we can kind of see that sometimes, I'm not saying that this always is the case. I mean, you know, we have to be clear that sometimes when a woman desires to have a family and get married, it's not like philosophers are gonna go around and say to every woman who desires to have a family and get married that she needs to do something different because that's not enough. I mean, that's not the point. The point is that sometimes it could be possible that because of societal pressures, sexist pressures, that a woman has desires that are not like they would be if it weren't for those societal pressures. And that's why it's interesting to think about this and to bring political philosophy and feminist philosophy into it. Yeah? So would desire theory uh, change based off of like, what environment you're in? Or would it only work in like, a utopian society? Yeah, that's the worry, is that now we're seeing that maybe environments, social and political environments, are relevant to the formation of a person's desires. When we started off, things sounded very simple. It was just like, well, satisfy your desires and then you're happy. And then we found, oh, well, wait a minute. Okay, maybe not your present or current desires in some cases, but your informed desires. That turned out to be tricky to kind of make sense of. But now we're saying something even more surprising, I think, from the beginning perspective, which is what about the social political environment and can that have, so you know, the, so again, the, the idea is if the social and political environment has a, some kind of a significant effect on your desires, then satisfying them according to desire theory will make you happy, but that seems like, well, we need to take a look at how these desires have been changed by the social political environment because in the case of this woman growing up in a sexist environment, if she satisfies her desires, desire theory is gonna say she's happy, but once we notice that those desires might be adapted down due to societal pressures, then it feels like something's off. It feels like maybe we shouldn't say that she's happy simply because she satisfied her desires. And if we can get that kind of critical traction then that functions as a criticism of desire theory because we've discovered something. We've discovered a situation where desire theory says someone's happy, but really it just doesn't sound right to conclude that for these reasons. Okay, well, let's go a little bit farther and you can stop me if I get into, or you know, we'll stop once in a while and talk about it, or you can stop me anytime you want. I mean, another way to, to put this is that if she doesn't, if this girl doesn't want to accomplish the goals that her brother wants to accomplish, then they won't factor into her happiness, according to desire theory. That's sort of a sideways way of saying it. Another way to put this is that it seems like this kind of problem, you know how you have a net 
Like if you have a fishing net and some fish are too small to be caught by the net and they just fall through the net. So I kind of like that metaphor, the desire theory might be too, the net might be too wide and some of these issues might just fall through the net. Like desire theory, if it's a net, doesn't catch these kinds of issues. They just sort of uh, fall through. I'm just trying to use a metaphor. Another way to put it is desire theory might be too coarse grained in order to capture this phenomenon of adaptive preferences. In other words, desire theory might not be able to deal effectively with this kind of concern because it's too coarse grained. The net is too wide. You know, the little, what do you call like the, the little holes in the net? They're the, two, the holes in the net where things can fall through, <laughs> I just sound like an idiot now, is too, they're too big. I mean, here's another way to put this. Oppressors, or think about people who are in the dominant group, who are kind of, you know, not very sensitive about being in the dominant group. When their desires are not satisfied, they're going to know it, you know? Uh, I mean, it's an, I mean, I'm, you know, even though I sort of grew up I mean, I grew up not economically in the dominant group because my family was, you know, not, you know, I'm, I don't even think middle class exactly. Um, but, you know, I'm white and I'm a man and I'm, you know, straight. So I've got all these dominant culture things going for me. And I really notice the more that I think about this, that for me, if my desires are not satisfied, I'm outspoken about it, and I'm very clear about it. I mean, there's something about being in the dominant class where you're very comfortable saying, wait a minute, I want that. And there's something different go going on sometimes. For, for, I mean, as a you know, progressive, I'm kind of a progressive, I'm not kind of, I'm a progressive Democrat. And as a progressive Democrat, you want everybody to have an awareness of their desires and clearly express them, you know? And so as a progressive Democrat, you worry. I mean, I'm a feminist. And as a feminist, you worry in this kind of case that some women might not be so quick to, to know what they desire and then be outspoken about it and this kind of a criticism of desire theory is a way of trying to capture uh, that concern. So, like I was saying, oppressors, or just sort of people who are comfortable in the dominant class, will notice when their desires aren't satisfied. And they'll have high expectations for what they want, because it's, we just grow up that way. I mean, that's what it means to be in the dominant class. It's just like you think, the world is my oyster. What do I want? Um, but people who are in oppressed classes may not have organically formed desires to begin with. Their desires may have, a, even unconsciously or consciously, have been adapted down so as to take into account what they think they can't have. 
Here's a, a fable, weirdly. Uh, this is one of Aesop's fables from the 6th century BCE. So we're talking, you know, more than 2,000 years old. And I'm going to read. It's like three sentences, four sentences. And this fable gets at the phenomenon. It's not exactly, but it gets at the kind of phenomenon that we're trying to talk about. And you've probably heard of it. It's Aesop's fable. It's what's referred to as the sour grapes fable. And it's actually called the fox and the grapes. And here's the fable. I'm not used to reciting fables, so cut me some slack. One hot summer's day, a fox was strolling through an orchard till he came to a bunch of grapes just ripening on a vine, which had been trained over a lofty branch. He said, just the things to quench my thirst. Drawing back a few paces, he took a run and a jump and just missed the bunch. Turning round again, he jumped up, but with no greater success. Again and again, he tried after the tempting morsel, you know, to get it. But at last had to give up and walked away with his nose in the air saying, I'm sure they're sour. The moral of the story stated by Aesop is that it's easy to despise what you cannot get. And so this is a bit of a conscious adapting down of desires. The fox initially wanted the grapes, but after realizing he could not reach them, you know, here the external circumstances are relevant. The grapes are really high. He decides that the grapes are probably sour and he no longer wants them. So his preferences or desires change based on the fact that he can't get what he wants. But this is all conscious for the fox, and the reason he can't get what he wants is due to a, a clear external circumstance. The grapes are high. But what we're talking about is a similar structure, but where the desires are unconsciously adapted down. And the reason for the adapting down is not some clearly discoverable external circumstance like the branches are too high, but the cause is sexism in this particular example that we're thinking about. So that's what's particularly insidious about the example that we're thinking about is that a person's desires, a girl's desires, can be shaped by a family or a culture, a sexist culture, without the person being involved in that shaping of their desires or even being aware of it. That's the subtle thing that we're trying to get to. I pause again to see if you have thoughts or comments or questions. Sometimes it's even helpful, I find, to just try to restate a main point. So sometimes if you don't have a question, you might say, okay, let me try to say what the main point is and tell me if I have it right. You can do that too, you know. Which is, in a way, kind of practicing for an exam. Like, I think this is the main point. Let me try to say it. So you can feel free to do that if you want. Or you can ask some question that just sounds, you know, simple.
That's okay too, to not say anything. Here's a short paragraph from the political, a great political philosopher named Will Kimlicka. And he's trying to explain this point. He's trying to explain this criticism. He says, Will Kimlicka, from a great book, by the way. Uh, I don't have the, it's an introduction to political philosophy, but it's kind of a remarkable book, but I don't have the exact citation. Anyway, here's what he says. If the prevailing cultural images define women's role as primarily to serve men, I mean, you know what we're talking about. We're talking about all the ways that women are depicted in traditional culture. If the prevailing cultural images define women's role as primarily to serve men, then women may adapt their preferences to fit the image unconsciously. This is one reason why we cannot take the existence of so-called contented housewives as proof that there is no injustice. Liberals and feminists agree that it's important that people form their preferences and goals, form their preferences and goals under conditions of non-oppression, free from fear or ignorance or prejudice. I'll read that last part again because it's amazing. Liberals and feminists agree that it is important that people form their preferences and goals under conditions of non-oppression, free from fear or ignorance or prejudice. So what he's saying is that when you're living in a... Now remember, this, this applies to all groups that are not the dominant group. If you're living in conditions of oppression, then this is a tricky environment in which to form your desires. And you can just take this case where growing up in a sexist culture, women are depicted in a certain way, and that has an effect on how you form your desires. Actually, oh God, I have an example of this that freaks me out still. Um, I remember when I was first, the first time I taught, and I started teaching a little bit late because I was a musician, so the first time I taught was in 2004. And I was teaching in graduate school, and we were reading some feminist philosophy, and I asked the women in the class, have you ever acted less intelligent than you are because you thought that was appealing to someone that you were flirting with or trying to, you know, date or maybe are dating. And a bunch of the women in the class said yes, that they've been in situations where they got the message that they should not act as intelligent as they are because it makes the boys... I mean, boys is a weird way to put it, feel uncomfortable. And that the, they, and the point was that they got some reinforcement. They felt that they got some reinforcement from, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this in a really sort of old-fashioned, you know, boy-girl kind of, you know, I'm sort of bracketing LGBTQ issues 
for simplicity's sake, but you can run this with a more informed perspective. But just for simplicity's sake, I'm just trying to run it in a cisgender way with boys and girls. Um, but what they were saying is that they got re positive reinforcement from the guys when they acted unintelligent. And I mean, what was struck, I was in, I mean, to, I, I should give you the context that I was in grad school at Columbia. And so I was teaching Columbia undergraduates. There were a lot of really smart women in this class. And I was stunned that they had, you know, had this experience, especially because they made it to Columbia. So these were really smart girls. And, and they found themselves in the situation. So my point for telling this story is that this is a case where there was some kind of direct social pressure to make the women feel like they shouldn't aspire to be intelligent or express their intelligence or discuss complex issues because the guys that they were trying to date or were dating didn't respond in a positive way when they did. That's a, like a concrete example of a social political pressure imposing on someone's choices. And you can imagine how that could adapt preferences down to try to accommodate that sexist environment. That's the kind of thing. So that's a kind of example of, it's an example of uh, conditions of, well, sexist conditions in someone's environment and how it can have an effect on your behavior and choices and, and desires. So, I mean, I've said this, well, maybe I should pause there for just a second to see if, if there's thoughts. Yeah. Well, that kind of reminds me of the book I'm reading at the moment, uh, The Feminist Eight by uh, Betty Friedman. Yeah. And uh, pretty much what that, the opening chapters of the book talk about, like, women who are, like, growing up in, like, uh, 1940s, 50s, that yeah. kind of generation, uh, they're so shaped by these desires to want to be a housewife, to want to find a husband, to want to have kids. And what happens is when they're actually, they achieve those desires and they become housewives, there's like an overwhelming sense of unfulfillment that yeah. comes over these women. And that's the problem called the feminist uh, Right. she talks about it. And yeah. puzzled psychologists for like years. But. So that's great. The unfulfillment is on this story that their desires were adapted down. They satisfy their desires. Mm -hmm. But then they find, ultimately, I'm not happy. Yeah. But you wonder why, because you satisfied your desires. Yeah, that's a great, perfect um, case of it. Uh, there's actually a, a film, a little bit of a... I mean, it's a serious film, but it's actually a comedy. But there's this film, I think it was made in the 90s. And it's got, it's like an all-star cast. It's got, like, Julia Roberts and Kirsten Dunst and... Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who now is a director. Um, and it's called Mona Lisa's Smile. And the story is that um, Julia Roberts is a, an art professor at uh, like some college like Vassar or something. And, uh, and she struggles with, it takes place in the early 60s. 
And she struggles with some of her women students because she wants them to go on to graduate school or to go on to be artists. And a lot of them just want to get married. And, and so it's kind of about this whole issue. It's really vivid when you see it in the 60s or 70s um, because the problem just you know, is obvious. And it's maybe less obvious the more, the less sexist our culture gets, it's maybe less obvious, but it's still there. Um, and that's why it's interesting to, to think about. So another way to sort of talk about an important aspect of this is that this adaptive preference criticism of desire theory emphasizes that political reality affects well-being. And so far, that's something that we haven't really encountered, this idea that politics or you know, social issues or a person's environment can affect well-being. And we're seeing in a very specific way how that's possible, even in a theory like desire theory, where the idea is that we see that political reality affects well-being because even when desire theory says that someone should be happy, they might not be. And in order to answer why they're not happy, you need to think about this idea of adaptive preferences. Now, you know, so that's the kind of, that's the criticism. We're still going to talk about it a little bit more, but we should, we should take into consideration a kind of reply to the criticism on behalf of the desire theorist. So, you know, we have, this is the way we do philosophy. We have like, here's the theory. Here are the reasons to support the claims of the theory. Here's a criticism of the theory. And now let's see if the, the theorist, the desire theorist, can reply, can try to give an objection to the objection. And you can, you've probably already thought about a kind of reply to the critical adaptive preference view that's kind of conservative. That's not kind of conservative. I think it's probably conservative. You can imagine a particular woman who, after learning about the philosophy of adaptive preference, emphatically still says, I want to be a housewife. Are we supposed to tell her that she's wrong, that she doesn't want to do that? Here's the way that Kimlicka, Will Kimlicka, raises this reply. He says, quote, how do we know when a desire to follow a traditional gender role is an authentic expression of a person's good as opposed to a merely adaptive preference, end quote. You know, so that's what's tricky about this is that we can't go around demanding that every woman who says she wants to have a family and kids rather than a career, we can't go around and say to all these women, your preferences are adapted down, you're not going to be happy. I mean, that seems like there, that seems like overstepping uh, what we have in the theory. Yeah. I was going to say, it seems solely up to the individual to think on this topic of, like, are they being influenced? Because someone can just have the opinion that they want to be, like, a housewife or something. Yeah. It's like, that can just be what they want to do. Yeah. But if they think they're being influenced, then they have to go out of their way to think about it themselves yeah. rather than having to be told it by someone else. 
Yeah, what, or maybe the, I mean, I think what maybe you're getting at is sort of the, you know, the sensitive way to sort of explore this adaptive preference criticism is to sort of bring it, bring it to the attention of someone who wants to follow traditional gender roles. I mean, I'm not, I, we're, it's, we're doing this thing where we're going back and forth between the theoretical level and the individual level. Uh, and it's tricky, and I just think I got myself into a little bit of a mess there. But the point is that um, in order, we, we just, we have to figure out a way to do this where we're not just going around and making demands about, you know, wait, traditional gender role, you're wrong, you know. So in some way, uh, I mean, actually, though, it's interesting because this is why I like the Martha Nussbaum because Martha Nussbaum actually tries to run this preference, this adaptive preference criticism pretty hard. And so we're going to get to that and, and she tries to, tries to push it through. But let me say a couple more things about that. Well, let's read first the Nussbaum on page two about this same concern. And... I'm looking at this passage numbered 114. Here's what she says about this. Now, we're still thinking about this conservative reply to the adaptive preference criticism. She says, feminists who challenge entrenched satisfactions are frequently charged with being totalitarian and anti-democratic for just this way of proceeding. Who are they to tell real women what is good for them or to march into an area shaped by tradition and custom with universal standards of what one should demand and what one should desire. Aren't they just brainwashing women who already had their own ideas of what was right and proper? So that's the, that's the reply from the, you know, you can imagine it as a reply from the desire theorist. It's a kind of conservative reply and uh, that's what we're talking about. I mean, you know, you can see what problems this raises when you realize that it, the, the adaptive preference criticism calls into question an individual's authority for deciding what they want and for what constitutes a good life. You know, the desire theory implies that a person is their own, their own authority of what makes their life good. And what makes their life good is satisfying your desires. The adaptive preference criticism is saying, wait a minute, what if your preferences were adapted down? And interestingly, if you see the adaptive preference criticism of desire theory as effective, then you're probably drawn to the position that there are some facts about well-being, about happiness, that are not subjective, which a person can be wrong about. And that's, that kind of tension is where we're at. I mean, that kind of tension between, you know, is a person really authoritative about what makes them happy? Or can someone observe something about their environment and then suggest that even if they have their desires satisfied, they won't truly be happy. 
So, you know, we're left in a really difficult spot right now, and that's why I want to turn to the Martha Nussbaum, because she gives us a very concrete example to help us see if we can sort through this. Yeah. Yeah, but, okay, so, yeah, I mean, you're raising a, that's helpful what you say, because it could be as simple as giving women information. You know, if someone has traditional desires that a liberal would see as sexist, traditional conservative desires to have a family and raise kids, if a woman has that kind of... uh, desires, then, you know, it could be as simple as just saying, well, look at all these things you could do. It could just be a matter of giving information, and then maybe after you give information, I mean, this is a little bit what Martha Nussbaum is trying to get at. It could be that after giving information, that in itself is enough for the woman to then be able to say, you know, either no, these are my real desires, or okay, maybe I'll think about, you know, lifting them up a little bit. But what's really a head game about this is that we're talking about what a person in an oppressed class, you know, a woman in this example, doesn't know about herself. And that's, it's a really weird space to be in to try to figure that out. All I guess we can do at the theoretical level is to try to describe the worry and to try to articulate what, you know, how the worry is related to a given theory of well-being. I mean, what's interesting about Martha Nussbaum is that she gets very specific about very specific initiatives to try to address this kind of concern in, at a practical societal level. Anyway, do you still have a... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, these distinctions that you're making. I mean, well, I'm having too many thoughts. Um, But you're saying, could, could it be that we should be thinking about mental well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being? Should we be drawing those distinctions? One thought I have, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but sometimes when people intellectually think that they're happy but they're not, it comes out in physical ways with physical ailments or, you know, sometimes if, if you think that you're, you're doing something in your life to make you happy, but you find that you're, you know, feeling bad or you're sick or something, sometimes, sometimes that's a kind of a symptom of a lack of understanding in yourself about what you should be doing. It's interesting that sometimes your body tells you something about what's going on that you don't see that needs to be fixed. I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but that's, that's an interesting kind of situation where maybe 
maybe this is related to some of the Betty Friedan stuff, I'm not sure, but that, that there could be physical symptoms. If you're, if like say there's a woman in a sexist culture, or sexist household, and say she satisfies the desires of having a family and getting married, if those desires are truly adapted down unconsciously, that tension could show itself physically. I mean, that's, if that's, yeah. And that's fascinating. I mean, that, uh, that that's maybe one way to see if the uh, desires were adapted down in a way where satisfying them leads to a kind of understanding of happiness, but it's not really happiness. And so there are symptoms, physical symptoms that, that demonstrate that. That's an interesting uh, way to think about it. I mean, there are a ton of films and books about the situation of women who become housewives. I'm not, there are some happy housewives, uh, I'm sure. And I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just trying to be charitable. I'm assuming, yes, and there probably are women who have happy lives if the only thing in their lives are children and being married. I mean, some women are really satisfied through raising a child. It's a really complicated thing to do. I suck at it. I mean, it's hard. So, um, so it's conceivable, certainly, that that would be a very rich life. But for, for many other women, it's not. And um, there are a lot of movies and films about that. Yeah. Could the same be said for like men who are just like, I want to have a job and I want to be really successful, but then they don't have like a family or Totally. Yeah, I think that's right. That men sometimes get on this track of thinking, I have to do this because this is what you know a man does. You have to do this thing. You have to get a job and make a bunch of money. And they could not be thinking about you know, whether it's family stuff or relationship stuff or other kinds of enriching things that they need in their lives. Yeah, it's interesting because now we're starting to drift into this issue of what makes life meaningful, not just what makes you happy. And that's handy because we're going to, after the break, after the break, we're going to read this amazing contemporary philosopher named Susan Wolfe who has this view that a good life consists of three dimensions, happiness, morality, and meaning. And she has a really nice way of talking about what meaning is in life. And she just kind of assumes happiness is something like hedonism. Um, so it's a kind of a nice balanced approach. Yeah. I think he's all kind of, like all these we're in a completely different space. So it must be really hard for the listeners. I'm sorry, podcast listeners. Um, but wait, let me try to formulate that, but don't forget your question. Okay. Um, okay, so we've gotten into this discussion about how maybe the issue is not just, there's a bigger or related issue, of not just about women who grow up in sexist households, but men who grow up adhering to societal norms that might be something like, in our society, men just do 
have to achieve professionally and make money and, and you grow up with, I mean, I grew up this way where I really, I'm really good at career and I'm not really good at other things. And I'm sure that has something to do with the way I grew up where my family really, you know, set the priorities like career, you know? And anyway, I was saying that um, this, there's an issue in existentialism, a kind of criticism, a kind of concern of existentialist philosophers. They say that living a bad life is to live inauthentically. And what it means to live inauthentically is not merely to do what one does or to follow the societal norms, but to not be aware that that's what you're doing. So to, to follow the societal norms, but to not be aware that you're following the societal norms is inauthentic. And, and so someone who does that is not going to be happy. We're not really now talking about a theory of happiness that we're talking about. Now we're actually talking about kind of meaning, but we're really talking about existentialism which we're not studying, uh, but we kind of got there. And it's an interesting way to frame this. Did you have another follow-up or something that you were? This is like such a complex topic where it's like, I feel like any question I ask is just like, yeah. when you get off topic. <laughs> so, okay. I don't pass it now. Okay. But, but let me just say another couple things about this because it's such an interesting topic, um, maybe. Uh, I mean, I, I remember there's a story that pops into my head that I always think of when I think of this problem of inauthenticity and societal norms, the exact societal norms that we're talking about. One of my best friends growing up was really into computers in the early 1980s. And he was one of these like DOS, you know, maniacs in the early 1980s. And because he was so focused on making money and having a career, he went to college and majored in finance and left computers behind. And I always thought in retrospect that was so sad because that was exactly the time to continue his fascination with computers and it would have paid off in a huge way financially and his life, he didn't, his finance studies didn't pay off and so it's kind of sad. But it's a a weird example of following the societal norms and then it just being very clear that that's not a path to happiness. Well, I won't say anything more about inauthenticity now because I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but it is interesting just the point is to sort of summarize that thinking about society, thinking about not just sexist stereotypes, but the broader idea of societal norms brings a lot of other kinds of people into this similar kind of concern that, that for a lot of people, not just for girls who grow up in a sexist household and not just for people in oppressed classes, but for anyone, it's possible that your desires are affected by the societal norms that's your point, which is a really good point. In a way that makes your desires not necessarily your desires. 
And so it could be that your desires are, if not adapted down, sort of twisted by the societal norms. And so we can make the similar point that if you satisfy your desires, desire theory says you're happy, but are you really? Because were your desires affected in a strange way by societal norms? I mean, it's an interesting way to broaden the concern. Okay, questions, comments? Did you? I don't want to okay. Okay. Uh, okay, well, let's talk though, about this specific case that Martha Nussbaum raises to try to really get concrete about this adaptive preference criticism. And, you know, she looks at these two women, Jayama and Visanti. And these are two sort of test cases that she looks at in order to explore the idea of adaptive preference. And she emphasizes that although these circumstances are very specific to these two people in India, we can recognize some crossover to some groups in America. Now, while we've been talking about political pressures as affecting desires, the way that Nussbaum describes the adaptive preference criticism is by talking about these social and political pressures affecting a person's inner life. So she uses that phrase inner life, and it's broader, but clearly that has to, clearly desires are contained in there, or preferences. So let's look at page one of the um, Annis reading, I mean the Martha Nussbaum reading, and I want to read something from the passage labeled 31 a, and skip the first sentence, um, Martha Nussbaum says, these circumstances affect the inner lives of people, not just their external options, what they hope for, what they love, I mean, you can see desires in there, what they fear, as well as what they're able to do. Neither Visanti nor Giama even thinks about getting a college degree. That would be total, totally alien to their sense of what is possible for them. And there would be no point in even entertaining the thought, however strong-willed, able, and determined they are. Now, she, another important uh, topic that Nussbaum discusses are what she calls universal values universal values and norms. And examples of universal values and norms are that people should have access to nutrition, health care, education, that they should have economic agency. And by universal values, Nussbaum means something like that we should all accept that a core set of goods should be available to everyone. Something like that. Universal values mean something like that we should all accept that a core set of goods should be available to everyone. In our discussion of Feldman, and we've brought it up a couple other times, we've talked about, we've used the term objective goods in order to refer to things like freedom and justice, 
friendship, knowledge. This is something like what Nussbaum is talking about, but she focuses on these much more practical kinds of universal values, but we might think of them as objective goods, having access to nutrition, education. But she also talks about um, self-respect as another one, which is a really interesting one. I mean, about this self-respect issue, Julia Annis in our, in our handout says that defective desires, adaptive preferences, spring from the internalization, this is the quote, spring from the internalization of ideas that deny the agents themselves proper respect. And Martha Nussbaum continues with this issue of self-respect. And she thinks that self-respect is one of these universal values. And she says that Jayama seems to lack self-respect. And look at page two. Let's see, page two. I want to look at the passage 113a. Bottom of the left column. But actually, I'm going to the top of the right column. Skip a line, skip two lines, skip one line. And I just want to read the sentence. Martha Nussbaum says, unlike Visanti, Jayama seemed to lack not only the concept of herself as a person with rights, which could be violated, but also the sense that what was happening to her was a wrong. So this is a worry about, you know, that her own inner life didn't contain this, this uh, self-respect. Now, there's a, here's a critical worry about Nussbaum's position, which is something like the worry, the, the criticism of the adapt, you know, remember, the adaptive preferences criticism is a criticism of desire theory. And then we considered this kind of conservative reply to the adaptive preferences criticism. Here's what comes up in Nussbaum that's kind of like that. She says, some people believe that in, this isn't a quote, but she says, some people believe that endorsing universal values causes one to overlook important cultural differences. Even worse, endorsing universal values could lead one to believe that our values in the West are best and that they are universal, which can lead to justifying colonialism. You know, this idea that, that if we in the West think that we know what's important, we know what the objective goods are, we know what the objective, what the universal values are, if we go to another culture and make judgments about their happiness by imposing our own objective values and universal norms on them, we could be getting something wrong in the same way that when we might go to a woman who wants to have a family and get married and say, you know, no, that shouldn't be your desires. It's the same kind of structural reply. But, and so the reason I wanted to get to this is here's Nussbaum's reply to the objection of her view. But remember the weird, we're in a bit of a tangled situation now. We're, we're, we're doing desire theory, criticizing desire theory with the adaptive preference criticism Nussbaum is kind of doing the same thing. And then there's this 
colonialism criticism of what Nussbaum is doing. And now here's Nussbaum's reply to that, which has, we can think of as a reply that also works against this conservative concern. So she says that endorsing universal values doesn't, lead, doesn't need to lead to the mistakes of colonialism or, you know, cultural, uh, you know, not taking a person's culture to be important enough. Because what she thinks is that endorsing universal values is necessary for helping individuals move beyond their adapted preferences, which are making their lives worse. And she thinks that we view situations like this with an intuitive sense of universal values that are important to a life, like self-respect. I mean, it is kind of hard to argue that self-respect shouldn't be something that everyone should have. And she discusses this in relation to these consciousness-raising videos which are shown to disadvantaged groups of women in India. And let's, let's read that passage on page 3. 126a is what I'm looking for. So here she is trying to reply to that colonialism worry. 126a, third line down. Now clearly, I'm just trying to jump in in the sentence here. The experience of watching the videos helps these women make adequate choices for the future not only by giving them new information, and we talked about information as one of the key things here, but by enhancing their sense of their own possibilities and worth. But we wouldn't think of this as progress or a correction of malformed preferences in the direction of true preferences if the women were taught by the videos to hide away in the house all day or to believe that they were made for physical abuse, abuse. It's because we have an implicit theory of value, she thinks that we all do, that holds self-respect and economic agency to be important goods, objective goods, that we think the preferences constructed by the videos are good. So she's saying that this is not limited to a culture, but that everyone does, has an intuition that self-respect and economic agency is good. And what's interesting about this is that she uses this very specific example to try to make the point, uh, which is really helpful. Okay, so let's consider this, this really specific case. Um, she considers women outside of this area called uh, Mahabubnagar who were happy subjectively, according to desire theory, prior to the consciousness raising videos and program. But after the consciousness raising program, their preferences changed and their lives obviously improved, Nussbaum thinks. Let's read page two, 113. B. Okay, skip the first sentence. She says, in the desert area outside Mahabub Nagar, Andhra Pradesh, I talked with women who were severely malnourished <clears throat> and whose village had no reliable clean water supply. Before the arrival of a government consciousness raising program, 
These women had apparently had no feeling of anger or protest about their physical situation. They knew no other way. They did not consider their conditions unhealthy or unsanitary, and they did not consider themselves to be malnourished. Now, their level of discontent has gone way up. You know, their desires have changed after the consciousness raising program. They protest to the local government asking for clean water, for electricity, for a health visitor. They protect their food supplies from flies. <clears throat> they wash their bodies more often. Asked what was the biggest change that the government program had brought to their lives, they immediately said, as if in a chorus, we are cleaner now. The consciousness raising program has clearly challenged entrenched preferences and satisfactions. And she thinks that this is an example where you can't criticize it in terms of the West bringing in and imposing some kind of objective values that are really only objective in the West on a different culture. She thinks that these are just obvious things that are good for a person and that this kind of program that adjusts preferences, desires up, um, you know, is clearly beneficial. Um, I, I have one more thought I want to make. Um, so the implication here is that either desire theory is an incorrect theory of well-being or that we need to adopt or that we need to opt for an informed desire theory that characterizes the consciousness raising that these women went through and stuff like it as a part of informing their desires. We talked a lot about informing desires, maybe tweaking adaptive preferences in a way by some kind of consciousness raising like this is a way of informing desires. And then we end up with a, uh, you know, an informed desire theory that takes this kind of stuff into account. Yes. Well, she thinks that. Yeah, but all, the other thing that's going on is she thinks that it's hard to object from the perspective of any culture with people having self-respect and economic agency and access to health care and education. So she thinks that it's partly to make sure that people have a choice, but it's also that there are some kinds of objective goods, universal values that it's just they just seem to be good for everyone. And if people are not getting them, then even if they're satisfying their desires, uh, they're not gonna be happy. Anyway, uh, don't forget to give me back the exams wherever they are. Remember that all of the lectures, use the break in order to catch up. Uh, and I put the, the Susan Wolf Meaning in Life PDFs online. Read the first one. For a quiz that we'll have opening on the Sunday at the end of spring break, you know, going through the Monday at one. It'll be on the first Susan Wolf reading, there are two. But also use the break to try to catch up and make sure that you understand everything. You can listen to the podcasts and uh, have a good break. <laughs>